listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. If you've got a Bible, open it with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We continue our year-long study of the book of Ephesians by looking at a new series entitled When the Two Become One. Buckminster, uh, Buckminster Fully, in the 1980s, create a concept, essentially what's called the knowledge doubling curve, or the double knowledge curve. He said up until the year 1900 that knowledge is doubling about every century. Around World War II, he estimated that knowledge doubled every quarter of a century, went from 100 to 25 years. And then in 2000-ish, somewhere in there, IBM's Watson came across with this theory The knowledge will double starting in the year 2010 every 11 hours. Our cumulative knowledge, according to IBM's Watson, would double every 11 hours. Therefore, you may be an expert in your field, but five years later, you're not up on the latest. And we are struggling to absorb all the information that's coming at us in this early part of the 21st century. Now, when looking at marriage, we may be tempted to think, we need to pay attention to the research. There's this idea that what is new is true and what is old is antique. And yet today, we'll, we'll look at some research insights, but we're gonna go back to something that I would consider timeless. The counsel from God's Word from 2,000 years ago and looking at this aspect of marriage. Despite the knowledge doubling curve, we're looking at this insights that come to us as a deposit from the Spirit of God Himself. Now, looking at Ephesians 5 in just a moment, I want you to notice something as you look at this. As we think about our culture today, Jesus' view of marriage. When we think about all the confusion about gender and marriage and all that's happening today, there's these two granite truths that Jesus brings us back to. Jesus said these words in Mark chapter 10, from the beginning, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Those two truths today are as classic and timeless and vital to us on the importance of marriage. Jesus said, truth number one, the two shall become one flesh. And truth number two, what God has joined together, let no man tear apart. And as we look at these today, we do have our eye on the secular research of universities and what it's telling us about marriage. In fact, the sequence from dating to marriage is very different in 2021 than it would have been in 1921 or in 1971. You're gonna see the results of a survey done recently, a Pew Research survey, This is done between those who are ages 18 and 44. And what it confirms is what our eye is seeing, that more people, according to this Pew Research survey, are cohabitating or living together than are married. According to the Pew Research survey, between the ages of 18 and 44, people, 59% will cohabitate to 50% that will be married. We're changing the sequence of relationships. The old sequence would look like this, dating, 
And then dating would move eventually into engagement, engagement into marriage. Marriage would then enter into sex, and sex would then enter into perhaps having children. But today, the sequence of a young lady's and a young man's life looks very different. So the sequence I just gave to you, the sequence looks like this. It's now dating and sex. Dating and sex lead to cohabitation. Cohabitation then will bring oftentimes children and then perhaps will be married. Now, I'm going to share with you in a little bit later in the message what those who are engaged in this survey, their own satisfaction in present-day relationships. But as we look at marriage today, perhaps in no other time has there been such cynicism. What does cynicism do to us? Well, let me give you an example. If I were to say to you, I've got a government official here today, and I want you to do what that government official says, it's going to be very difficult to convince you of that. Research tells us that when Watergate happened in the early 1970s, our trust level of institutions, specifically government, had begun to plummet to the place where we are today when there's a pandemic and we don't trust what government's saying. When I talk about marriage, those of you who have a lot of relationship history, oftentimes that history moves into relationship collateral. When you come into a marriage with a whole lot of relationships back there, you're going to approach your present relationship, your present marriage, with a great deal more cynicism. There are some here perhaps today who will say, I, I'm happy for you to have a good marriage, but there's no way that I would ever put the ring on in another way. I'm just so jaunted. I'm so jaded, I should say, not jaunted, jaded with this whole di- idea of marriage. Cynicism. May I ask you, to press pause on that for just a minute and to listen again in a fresh new way to the counsel from God's Word. It may not be the latest in research, but it is timeless truth. My goal for you, by the way, is not just to have a good marriage. My goal for you is to have a Christian marriage. And along the way, I'm going to be speaking some practical truths. And if I were single today, I would write some of these down. And instead of just looking for somebody cute or somebody sexy or somebody who's willing, I've been looking for principles and character. Because one day, I came to this years ago doing marital counseling, and I don't want to do your marital counseling. Don't come to me. I, I love you. There's better people. But I came to this concept years ago. That one day, I'm going to be in a nursing home. And what makes me happy today may not what makes me happy then. I can pursue a temporary happiness, or I can pursue a happiness when, God willing, she's holding my hand and the two of us are sitting together with maybe half dozen teeth between the two of us and one brain cell between the two of us. What do I want then to make me happy? And the concept has helped me through the years. Today, I want to look with you at the timeless truth of Ephesians. Beginning in verse 22, Ephesians chapter 5, God's Word says the following. Wives, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This is God's Word. May God bless the reading of his Word. I don't want just for you to have a good marriage. I want you to have a Christian marriage. 
And a Christian marriage is distinct from a good marriage. Everybody can have a good marriage, God willing, but a Christian marriage I'm defining as the permanent union. Not a temporary union, not a decade-long union, but the permanent union of two born-again people, people who've met Jesus Christ and who don't just have a knowledge of him in their mind but have, have had him impact. People of the opposite sex coming together for the purpose of radical oneness. Jesus said the two shall become one flesh. Radical oneness, encouraging and equipping one another for the time when each will appear before Jesus Christ. I have Tracy on loan, God willing, for several decades more. There's a day that I will release her hand and she'll release my hand and we will appear before Jesus Christ all by ourselves. I want you to have a Christian marriage, a permanent union of two born-again people who come together in this radical oneness to encourage and equip one another for the joy of following our Savior. Today I want you to see in Ephesians 5 a divine order. Beginning in verse 22, if these words were read at University of Texas at Arlington, if I were to take these texts and read at the University of North Texas, or if I were to go down to Austin and read it in a classroom there, there'd be some who would hyperventilate, there'd be others who want to throw stones at me. If I were to read this in many churches or higher learning education, Christian education institutions, there'd be some who would smirk at me. For many of these words are an embarrassment. Wives should submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Here in Ephesians 5, Paul, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, presents the marriage of a man and a woman as a picture of Christ and his church. Remember what we said throughout Ephesians. The spiritual reality is always first and foremost, and heaven is a representation and a picture of what goes on. Uh, earth is a representation or picture of what goes on in heaven. Let me say that better. What you see on earth is a picture, a representation of what first is spiritual. The spiritual is always first. The spiritual is always the picture. And this picture of marriage that we have between a man and a woman is a picture, the Bible says, of Christ and his church. And the husband and wife are to take our cues from these words. Now, some may look at these words and say, Pastor, aren't these just culturally appropriate to the first century. Since Paul wrote this probably in the 60s, 60s AD, isn't this just a reflection of what was going on in Rome? Can't we dismiss this? And I would say we cannot dismiss this for several reasons. First, the command in front of you is repeated numerous times in 1 Peter 3. It's repeated in 1 Corinthians 11 where the Bible says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ that the head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Each of the three have a leader. A man, male, is answerable to Christ. Wife, answerable to her husband, and certainly Christ beyond that. And even Christ has himself a submission that he is to God the Father, even though he's every much God, every ounce God is God the Father is. So it's repeated. Secondly, your New Testament argues that the way in which a marriage should happen is reflective of the first couple. Earlier I said that when Jesus spoke about marriage that he would always go back to Adam and Eve, and Paul goes back to Adam and Eve, and he argues 
that leaders, males, are leaders in the marriage because the order of creation. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says these words, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And everything in First Timothy with a prescription of how a church is to be conducted in genders is from that principle that Adam was first and Eve. Now, that makes no sense to us. Just because Adam was around a few more hours or days or weeks or even if there was years between Adam and Eve's creation. This is what we'd say. So? And yet your New Testament cares about that fact a great deal. One of the ways that that happens as you move back into the creation narrative, into the first couple, Adam and Eve. And again, they're their paradigm. Jesus takes us back to them, and Paul takes us back to them. And in Genesis, what you'll find is this. Everything is being created, and God is naming everything that's being created. Everything comes, sort of comes down a, a, a factory line, if you will, and he's just naming them one after another, after another, after another. And then the Bible says these words in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. Man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, Genesis here, this is a, a lyrical Hebrew poetry or poem, if you will. Adam is looking at the naked form of a woman, and he is saying, she's hot. That's what he's saying in Hebrew. She's mighty good looking. And then he comes along, and then he does this. He names the gender. He doesn't give his wife's name as if I were to give my child's name, but he names the gender. Now stop and think about that for just a second. In the Genesis narrative, God has been naming everything, one after another, after another, after another. And all of a sudden, God stops, and he hands that responsibility off to the husband, to the male. Do you think God was tired? Do you think God was just mentally fatigued? Do you think he just said, I... If I look at another paper, if I look at another creation, I cannot think. He's showing us something here. He's asking for the male to take leadership. And when you name something in the pages of Scripture, you have authority. So your New Testament argues that the order of creation matters, and he's naming the gender in this place. In fact, what the Bible is saying is, being reported in biological science and anthropology studies is something significant. Anthropology, the study of humanity, history tells us they studied 250 university research scientists have studied 250 different races or 250 different uh, cultures, I should say, 250 different cultures. And here's what they found. Males lead and women are the primary caregivers. 250 different cultures. Now listen, I, I know I'm speaking to 2021, and I'm up here as a Baptist in a suit teaching and preaching this, and I know that there are people who hyperventilate with this thing, and you want to redefine gender, and you want to redefine all this. Get after it, if that's where you want to go. And then you're going to come back and wonder why you're not happy. Because you will run yourself off a barricade off a cliff, and you'll ruin your family. But this is the divine design, and this is what the university scientists are telling us in this anthropology study. Women are primary caregivers. They involve themselves in 250 different cultures in caring for their young. And men, 
Here's what they found. We're often the rule makers, the hunters, the builders, the fashioner of weapons, the workers in metal, wood, and stone. God has given a design to the marriage, and you will find satisfaction in your marriage when you follow the design. Now, I need to say some things. First, while the genders are not interchangeable, they are equally worthy and equally competent before God. The genders are not interchangeable. God gave you biological equipment that he did not give the opposite sex. He also gave you intelligence that's equal in both. Genesis chapter 1 where it says this, God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Both male and female, he created them. So every one of these young ladies in front of me are equal in worth and dignity and intelligence and competence as every one of these young men. Or perhaps the young men will catch up in intelligence in a couple decades. <laughs> There's distinct genders, and they're equally worth the same before the presence of God. Neither one takes a back seat to the other in terms of worth. And every time a man usurps his position and abuses females, he's denying this equality. Whenever men are thought to be better than women, whenever husbands act as selfish dictators in their home, whenever wives are forbidden to have their own jobs outside the home, or to vote, and when women are denied the right to have property, or they're denied the right to be educated, whenever women are treated as inferior, whenever there's abuse, or whenever there's violence against women, or whenever there's rape against females, or female infanticide, or in cultures that I've been in across the seas, where they take the young because they're only allowed one child, and take that female and abandon that infant female because they're waiting on a male infant to come, wherever there's polygamy, or wherever there's harems, each and every time this denies the biblical truth of equality that both male and female are equally worth the dignity and honor before an almighty God. Amen. You have distinct functions. This doesn't mean that women can't work outside the home, but you have distinct functions. And the Bible argues this because the order of creation, it's not just because he's been around a few extra hours, the males, or a few extra weeks or days, we don't know how long. She's probably caught up in intelligence and surpassed you by now, whatever that might look like. That was meant to be a joke. <laughs> but the Bible says that males are to lead. A moment ago, I talked about the sequence in which we're going about finding a mate in our day. The old paradigm was dating, then perhaps engagement. Engagement would lead to marriage, and marriage would lead to sex, and sex would lead to living together, to, yeah, living together and then children. And today, that's been turned on its head. Sex is introduced early in the dating relationship with many young people today. And then more chances than not, they're cohabitating, and then the cohabitation will lead to children. And then even then, there may be marriage and there may not be. A University of Virginia survey asked how couples are satisfied with their relationships today. And the survey says they're not as, they're not as satisfied as, as you would lead, as you would think. 
people who were married before, people who were living with a boyfriend or girlfriend before, people who were, have a higher number of sexual partners reported lower satisfaction once they're married. In fact, it trickled down that married people report being more faithful than people who were cohabitating and that married people are acting in better interest than those who are cohabitating and married people tend to tell the truth in the relationship more than those who are cohabitating and married people tend to handle money better than those who are cohabitating. And this is how they reported it, the couples themselves. Despite the enlightened culture we live in, when you put a ring on the finger, it matters. When you sign your name certificate, it matters. And again, I don't want you to just have a good marriage. I want you to have a Christian marriage. Because the sound of my voice, if they're Christian marriages, you could raise a neighborhood, you could raise a street, you could raise a school, you could raise a classroom. Because the hopes in this cynical age, if they were to see two married people coming together for the joy and loving one another for decades and asking forgiveness when fault is found, it's powerful. You're not living by yourself. There's something powerful there when that happens. There's a divine order, verse 22. The Bible says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I want you to follow the logic of the passage. You need the Bible open in front of you because the Bible says that husbands are to submit to wives in verse 21. And then wives are to submit to husbands in verse 21. And then it comes along as it says, after they're both mutual submission, that wives are to submit to the husband in verse 22 and goes as much as to say in verse 24 that the wife is to submit to the husband as Christ of the church. What do we learn from this? We learn that submission is not just for women. Submission is for every Christian. Every Holy Spirit-filled believer will submit to someone. If you've been in the military, you know this. If you're successful in life, you know this. You submit to the man who has a uniform on when he pulls you over. Even the President of the United States is submit to the laws and rules of the Constitution of our nation. And so while the Bible here says that all are submit, husbands are asked to submit once, why is it at least twice? What does submission mean? Submission means that I'm to yield myself willingly. I'm to have a disposition a willingness to yield. I've been a pastor coming up on 25 years. I know you're saying your hair, you look so young, 25 years. And not once in the 25 years would I consider myself a leader if I look around and nobody's following. And here's how you don't lead. You don't turn around when nobody's following and say, hey, I'm the leader. You're supposed to follow me. If you find yourself doing that, you're not leading. The submission piece here is a willingness, a yielding. This is not where the husband, I'm the ruler around here. I'm the leader. This is not male domination. The Bible says here that the wife is not to submit to any man, verse 22, but only to her husband. That doesn't mean that you ramrod through things. It doesn't mean you rule by executive fiat. It doesn't mean that you come out of the bedroom and you say, I've looked in the mirror and we have decided this and you will follow woman. You, my friend, are incredibly stupid if you do that kind of thing. 
And please don't come to me to fix your stupid. <laughs> Submission is when she yields to your guidance. She's inclined to follow your leadership. In fact, we say submission, there's some things that submission is not. Submission is not her saying, I will do whatever you say, even if you tell me not to follow God. Because if the husband is to lead and he says, I don't want you to do what God says, I want you to steal, I want you to lie, I want you to watch pornography together, she is to say, no, no. I cannot do that. You do never obey an authority that tells you to disobey God. Submission is not mental intimidation. It's not emotional intimidation where a husband manipulates his wife emotionally or sexually to get his way. That is sinful and that is selfish. In fact, verse 22 may look like men that it's a bonanza for you, that you get to be in charge, and you get to do what you want to do, but if you're reading it that way, you're misreading it. Five minutes to go in the fourth quarter, I went to bed last night. All of you Aggies, you're having trouble focusing on anything I'm saying. <laughs> you're ecstatic. You beat Bama last night. When Alabama went up by a touchdown, I said, that's it. I'm going to bed. I got to get up early. Nobody comes back against Bama with a touchdown lead, and I watched that offense at the A&M, and they weren't doing anything, and I was so wrong. So I had my phone out. I read my devotion, I got to the news part, and I looked over there and I read how AM came back and won it by a field goal. And then I began to read Coach Nick Saban's comments. Nick Saban may be the greatest college football coach ever. And he began to talk about the things that didn't happen for Alabama. There was no turnovers, or very few turnovers, and the defense couldn't stop anybody, and the offense couldn't conclude drives. And then he said an important statement. This all comes back to me. Now, whatever you think of Nick Saban, and I'm not here to tout Nick Saban, that's a great statement. That's a leader statement. It all comes back on me. That's what it means to be a leader, husbands. That's what it means to be a leader. When a program gets in trouble, what do they want to do? They're going to fire the coach. Why are you going to fire the coach? Because he's the leader. If your marriage is in trouble, it's likely the leader is not leading. In verse 22, what I've discovered about this whole subject is while it is offensive in this culture to see this and to talk about this, I found that most ladies, most wives are happy to submit if they've got a loving husband who has her interest at heart and he leads. Now, if he puts his own interests first, She's got a radar to smell that. She can figure that out. Matter of fact, your daughter can figure that out pretty easily. One of my goals as a leader, men, and you ought to have goals. I bet Nick Saban, every college football coach, has a goal, don't you? You have a goal for your marriage? Here's one of my goals. When my daughter gets married one day, she wants me there and respects me enough to put me in this ceremony. And the only way that happens is if I treat her mama well for the first 20-something years. This is not a college football season. This is not 11 games and the Sugar Bowl or the Sostita Bowl are going to invite me. This is a lifetime. This is hard stuff. 
This is difficult. This is challenging. And nothing in this culture is making marriage easy. Nothing. Nothing. Everything that's giving cues on the outside is telling us this is difficult. Men, you and I have to lead with Christian love and compassion. And we cannot dismiss this command because some men have used this to abuse women and twist the Bible's teaching for their ugly actions. I want to close with four Ps, men, if you're going to be a leader. And I've shared these in several places, and I would just write this down. If I was a young lady today looking for a future mate, I'd write these four Ps down. And I'd hold up that little index card next to the cute boy with the great jeans and the great car. And I'd say, uh-uh. He may have a cool car, but he doesn't have four Ps. And I ain't bringing this joker home to my dad. Four Ps. Husbands, you've got to step up your game. First, you're to be a prophet. A prophet knows the Word of God. A prophet is going to have the Word of God spoken in his home. It's going to be intentional about following marriage. Religion matters to marriage, by the way. You may be surprised that Israel's quite liberal. 2003 study at Ben Garen University, there in liberal Israel, found that there's higher satisfaction rates for couples who are religious and married as opposed to couples who are not religious and married. That's what it showed. Over a 30-year study says secularism, where you're really just supposed to make yourself happy. Secularism is not making people happy in marriage, but those who go to synagogue together reported a flourishing marriage as supposedly were not. Religion matters. Just as a University of Virginia study, excuse me, a Pew Research study said that those who cohabitate together were not satisfied, you as a prophet, you are to lead spiritually. How does that look like? You read the Word of God at home. You pray out loud. There's training wheels. You go that far, if you pray out loud, husbands, you pray out loud, dads, you read the Word of God together, you've gone ahead about 90% of the men I've ever met in 25 years of pastoring. You lead on Sunday. You lead on Sunday. We're going to the house of the Lord. You two can choose, but we're going we're gonna to go there. That's just what we're supposed to do. You're to be a prophet. Secondly, you'd be a priest. A priest is a little different than the prophet. The prophet is to be speaking to the people about the Lord, but the priest represents, represents God to the family. Here you have a clear understanding of the Word of God, and you're intentional. Let me show you one more study, a University of Virginia study, and I love the words they used. Sliding versus deciding. Sliding versus deciding. Sliding into the big milestones of relationship. What are those milestones? Engagement. Should we have sexual relations before engagement? Should we wait until after we're married? Should we have kids? Should we not? Should we have a wedding? Should we elope? How the couples handled these mattered. These definitive decisions. Couples who slid without forethought into these reported lower satisfactions in their relationships, in their marriage, to couples who intentionally decided. Men, I know you don't have a clue what she's thinking. I've been married to one for 26 years. 
she will tell me what she's thinking, and I still don't know what she's thinking. (laughs) But if you're going to be a priest, you may not know the answers, but you can at least say, we got to talk about this. you got to decide. You don't want to ooze into this. If you ooze into this, you're going to ooze out of your relationship several decades later. You're going to be going through the big D. It's not called Dallas. And you're going to be wondering, what happened here? Because you began at some time to just slide without intentionality. It doesn't mean you can make everything happen, but men, you must be the priest you must lead. If you want your marriage to flourish, don't slide, but decide. And if you're single here today, you're single and you're in a marriage series. Let me give you a couple things you should be thinking about doing if you're single. Don't sleep around. It clouds your judgment. You're bringing relationship collateral into your future marriage. People who've slept with many people and then go into marriage are telling us in a secular University of Virginia study, they're not as happy in their relationship. Do your future self a favor and minimize the relationship collateral. Secondly, don't date non-Christians. The Word of God says you have no business dating a non-Christian. You're going to date a non-Christian. Your heart's going to fall in love. Two decades later, you're going to have a mess on your hand. That mess is going to be 18, 19. And he's going to, or she's going to try to decide, should I go the atheist way? Should I go the Buddhist way? Should I go over the Christian way? What do you want out of life? One of the things I want out of life are for my three biological kids to appear before the Lord Jesus Christ one day and to know Christ. So don't date non-Christian. Third, don't live together. Not just because the Bible says it's wrong. I would love to be in a world where when the Bible says it's wrong, we would all do it. But because, again, our society is showing us we don't like what we're doing. And fourth, if you're single, don't settle. Don't settle. Men, you're to be a prophet. You're to be a priest. You're to be a provider. You may not bring the whole biggest check, but you're a provider. If you're underneath the age of 70 and you're not working, you're probably sinning. Now, somebody's going to find an exception to that. You're going to come talk to me in the hallway about it. Okay, praise the Lord. But if you know what's going on with daytime television, you've got a problem, men. You need a job. You need to be productive. Don't be lazy. Don't be self-centered. Get to work. And then lastly, you should be the protector. You are the stronger one. You're to protect your home. No matter who you are, you need to know Jesus Christ. As someone of a veteran of marriage, she's not going to feel your emotional needs, and I'm not going to feel her emotional needs. Here's where I get my emotional warm fuzzies. Jesus Christ died for me, and I don't deserve that. Let's pray together. Father, we need your hand on us today in a profound way. We need you to collect us and bring us close to the Lord Jesus and to put your grace upon us today, Father. There are men and women here today, boys and girls who don't know you, and they need to have the living encounter of Christ and your love. Father, strengthen us. Remind us that every one of our marriages are to be a picture of the marriage of Christ and his church. 
And when you grip your bride, you will never let go. We don't deserve your love, but we do thank you, Father. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.